You're listening to 1A, a ministry of First Presbyterian Church, episode 28. Welcome back to our third series called Confessional Life, where Derek and I will discuss some of the basics of the Westminster Standards and what it means to live that out. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Pres. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. If this is your first time giving us a listen, we want to welcome you. We appreciate you taking the time to check us out. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can visit our webpage, which is firstpreskolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstpreskolumbia.org forward slash 1A. To find out how to contact us or how to subscribe, listen to the end of the show. If you do find this ministry useful, then subscribe using the application of your choice, and every Monday a new episode will be waiting for you. Also, while you're there, leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. In this episode, we talk about why the Westminster of all the confessions, who the conversation partners are for the Westminster Divines, what their debate looked like, and the return of our segment, Orthodox or Not. Now, let's get to our show. Derek, last week we talked about the confession and why we use confessions. Uh, this week we're talking more about the history of the Westminster Assembly and the confession. So I was wondering if you might be able to start us off with a discussion of why the Westminster Confession. So what is it about the Westminster and what, why do we hold the Westminster Standard? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, we are a Presbyterian church, so I, I take it you're asking about us meaning meaning us. Right. First Presbyterian church in Columbia, South Carolina. Right. Uh, we we are a church in a denomination going back to the 18th century that is Presbyterian, and Presbyterians have adopted the Westminster Standards. So can you be Presbyterian outside of the Westminster Standards? Could you, could you say I'm Presbyterian, but I, I don't really hold the Westminster Confession as a standard of faith? Well, only if you engage in some semantics as to what Presbyterian then means. And I presume in that ca- case, Presbyterian would have to be, a, I hold to a Presbyterian form of church government, namely government by elders, ruled by elders. And, and that could loosely be defined as Presbyterian, but not uh, not necessarily holding to the Westminster Confession. Right. Uh, there are certain Reformed Baptists who might find themselves saying, I hold to a Presbyterian form of church government, meaning they're not independents, they, they believe in some kind of connectionalism, mm. um, and, and maybe not use the word congregational, uh, but Presbyterian. Anyway, that that's we're Presbyterians because we hold to the confession because we're Presbyterians. Right. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about um, the three forms of unity and the three forms of unity being um, a set that is more warm, more pastoral than the Westminster. Do you think that's true? No. 
Okay. Why do you think that? Do you have some well, of why it's that fashionable reputation? to say that it is fashionable to say that? Why do you think that that has come up? Why do you think people? Uh, because I think I'm not sure what warm might mean in this context, but <laughs> right. uh, there is certainly a, some degree in which the three forms of unity, and we're talking about the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. Now, I, I wouldn't describe the canons of Dort as warm. Right. Uh, these are the five points of Calvinism. Uh, and they're very combative in their format against Arminianism. But um, there is a degree to which the, the Reformation, post-Reformation in Europe, took a decidedly experiential direction. And that shows itself largely in maybe the Heidelberg Catechism more than the Belgic Confession. And yes, the the statements in the Confession, Westminster Confession, do come across on occasion a little more cerebral, mm. although I wouldn't say that about chapters like Assurance, mm. and even the chapter on Law shows... Um, an acquaintance with and a desire to address experiential mm. issues, um, head and heart, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but I think that's overdone. Mm. And, you know, most people uh, who w want to sort of adopt a more experiential um, understanding of doctrine, well, you know, they don't need to go to the three forms of unity uh, to do that. And the Puritans, who were the framers of the Westminster Confession, uh, certainly were experiential mm. uh, in their teaching and preaching. Mm. It, it is an interesting question in a more general way, what is the relationship between theology and experience? Mm head knowledge versus heart knowledge yeah. and are they are they exclusive are they in opposition uh, or are they complementary one of the other and i would say that the westminster divines would see that as mm. complementary mm. so I, I don't feel the need to jump into um continental reformed three forms of unity to you know, address my experiential needs. Right. There are some denominations that have adopted multiple confessions into like a book of confessions coming from the PCUSA. I think I mentioned this last episode that that was my wife and I's first reformed church was PCUSA. And you got a copy of, of a book of confessions, which had a number of them, the, the Westminster included. Is that valid to have multiple confessions to which you subscribe? Or, or at the moment that you subscribe to multiple confessions, are you now at crossways with yourself? Well, uh, with all due respect, I think that the PCUSA uh, were, were and are on a trajectory of a postmodern view of truth mm -hmm. in which all expressions of truth are equally valid mm -hmm. and therefore to have a book of multiple confessions was just, you know, and that ultimately will lead to a book of no confession. Right. But but that, I think that's just part of a trajectory of an inability on the part of, of 
many who call themselves Christians to assert truth and error uh, and, and want to assert in its place um, a, a multiplicity of truths mm. as part of the postmodern trajectory. Okay, so next question. You gave a quote from uh, Gillespie about the um, Westminster Confession and who they were in conversation with. Um, so, so let me just give a list here of, of who he talked about. And these, these are errors that he wants the Westminster to stay away from or to address. So Sinians, Arminians, Popish, Antinomian, Anabaptisian – and independent errors is the quote. Can can you fill that out for us a little bit and give us a sense of who these conversation partners are and what they were trying to avoid? Right. Uh, these these are just categories, of course, uh, that would be prevalent in the early to mid seventeenth century. So these are the particular areas of controversy: Socinians denying the deity of Christ, um, the Anabaptists, and, and Baptists don't need to get too uptight here, the Anabaptists of, of pre-1643 uh, were anti-Trinitarians, mm. so they were Unitarians and therefore were regarded as heretics. Mm. Uh, and I think that John Bunyan, as a Baptist, post-1643 in the 1650s and 60s when the Baptist Church has, has really emerged as a, as a, as a reformed church. Uh, but, but Anabaptists were, were regarded as sectarian. Hmm. Uh, the Arminians, of course, are a reference to the anti-Calvinists of the early part of the 17th century and, and, uh, the Synod of Dort, 1619, 1819, was the response to that. And independent, well, this is George Gillespie who's making this comment, a staunch Presbyterian, mm. and and probably had aspirations that the Westminster Confession would, would be a, a Presbyterian um, document as far as church government is concerned. Actually, the Confession... Is is rather bland, um, as it turns out in church government. The another document, the form of church government, would be much more Presbyterian than the Confession was, mm. um, and that's because you did have independence in the assembly and the famous painting of the assembly that everybody has seen uh, from the nineteenth century. Um, is of Philip Nye, one of the independents, arguing the independent position, but uh, and also the issue of conscience, which for him, the matter of church government was an issue of conscience. And then Popish errors, of course, um, and, and antinomian errors. Uh, the antinomians, you know, they're still with us in the sense of the debate on law and, and grace and the the instinct within an antinomian uh, to to be reticent about any sense of ought or command or imperative mm. uh, as necessarily denying grace in some way. Mm. 
you mentioned the the debates, and uh, you mentioned Gillespie wanting this to be a little bit more strong than ultimately it was. And in the teaching the other night, you talked about these kind of smoke-filled rooms that these people would talk in. Do we have any sense of what this debate looked like when they disagreed with one another? How long it took and the, the decorum that they would have used with each other? Well, yes, uh, we do have we do have some depiction of it. We were until recently dependent on uh, the work of uh, Carruthers and others in the in the nineteenth century, and and we thought that we had a fairly accurate view. But it, it's actually turned out that we didn't really have a an altogether accurate view. And Chad Van Dixorn in our time hmm. uh, has done the definitive research on the minutes of the assembly um, up until Chad Van Dixorn. Uh, we, I think we were only looking at possibly less than 10% of the minutes hmm. and papers. Uh, and now he managed to uncover the original papers and so on, and hmm. which had been put in a vault somewhere in in the Bodleian Library in Oxford or I think that's where it was. Mm. Um, so uh, we we have a better picture now of what it was, and and my my understanding is that there were some heated debates, mm. uh, daily debates. Some of them went on every day for you know four, five, six weeks mm. back and forth on issues, and issues of. I mean, issues of some importance. Uh, the doctrine of justification, uh, surprisingly, had a, a long and um, difficult time, mm. partly because of the language of the active and passive obedience of Christ and the issue of double imputation, mm. the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. And those ideas and concepts and particularly the terminology would have been fairly new in the 1640s Hmm. Um, and perhaps we have um, taken that a little further than some were prepared to do Hmm. so so, uh, I I use the word that the confession is a consensus document and then somebody emailed me um, challenging this word consensus I I still think it's a perfectly valid word (laughs) Um, but I I get the point that sometimes in in a debate at presbytery things are passed and minuted without realizing the strength to which disagreement actually took place on the floor hmm. so so unless there is a minority report hmm. delivered you have no idea as to the strength of feeling that the opposition and if it is a majority vote for example there might have been 49 percent who are you know sweating bullets about a particular issue right but the minute would not reflect that huh. the minute would simply reflect that the eyes have it, and and this is what was agreed. Hmm. So I didn't. So I don't mean consensus in the sense that everybody sort of sang kumbaya after right. each one. No, there were votes taken, and and some of those votes were probably very close. Right. Um. And and I think that in certain issues, um, 
those votes were close, but there yeah. were rules, mm. uh, like like Robert's rules of order. But there were rules about debate mm. and dissension, and and how you would record that dissension, mm. and um, whatever was agreed in a committee would be sent to uh, the floor mm. uh, for. Um, a meeting of the full assembly, and mm. sometimes it would be sent back again to the committee if mm. there was a sense in which there wasn't agreement, and um, mm. they didn't have the sound of buzz saws in the background as we do. Mm. Mm. So, um, Our new building in progress. In progress. Do we have you had mentioned? I think four people whose voices were had had weight like maybe four theologians from Oxford and Cambridge am i getting this number wrong uh the the scottish delegates okay were probably the most theologically um gifted in the assembly okay so i'm just wondering do we have a sense when they're debating are there people who their voices carry more weight than others, and and how was that handled? Yes, I mean none of that appears, of course, in the confession. Right. In the minutes, you certainly get a sense that there are certain people who speak a lot, hmm. as is always the case. This is always the case. Yeah. Uh, one gets the impression that when the Scottish delegates spoke, uh, that there was a a sense of gravitas and, mm. and, and that they listened. Mm. I think the prolocutor, William Twiss, was one whose opinion was was um, was weighed mm. heavily. Mm. Um, y- yes, but none of that appears, of course, in the confession itself. You don't, you don't right. You don't get the sense that this. Although, I mean. You know, it's often it's often thought that the first chapter of the confession on uh, the doctrine of scripture is by the hand of one particular man mm. who had written at considerable length on this topic, mm. and that this you know sometimes sometimes at a meeting somebody will just produce a, a sort of almost finished product, right? Uh, and maybe there are some tinkerings with a word here or there but the but the gist of it is produced there and then on the floor yeah i have a motion yeah and you 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 sense that this motion was actually prepared not 10 minutes ago while people were talking right that happens too yeah but this is a motion that had been prepared even before they came mm. Mm. Uh, and it has been well thought out and mm. i, I I, my understanding is that the first chapter, for example, would, would be an example of that. Mm. I, you can't compare this, say, to an average meeting of presbytery. Right. We, we sometimes say to young presbyters recently ordained, you know, that they shouldn't speak in the first year or two of a presbytery. I heard that you don't speak for the first three years of presbytery and for the first five years of either Synod or General Assembly. That's the rule that I heard. Right. Well, we all know exceptions to that, for sure. Um, but as a rule, that 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 seems to 
you know, have some wisdom behind yeah. it, and it, it is an example, at least in the past, it would have been an example of deferring to older, wiser people. Now, mm. that that principle is being challenged by various sociological groups, mm-hmm. uh, for example, without mentioning any. Um, and so that rule is, is unwritten rule, is is broken more and more, I think. And we've seen it at our synods, for example. But in the assembly, you really do have, on the part of the clergy especially, I mean, you, you do have uh, considerable minds. Whilst there was an acknowledgement probably among them that some were more equal than others, on the whole, I think what you have is a gathering of, of minds that are, you know, roughly equal in terms mm. of their ability, mm. um, with one or two exceptions. It's interesting to me how often in Presbytery or in Senate or General Assembly, j- just trying to follow that rule of, of taking a season, a longer season, not to be someone who stands up and talks, but just to listen, how often someone will make the same point that I wanted to make, they'll just make it better than I was ever going to make it. And so it's better just to, to well, listen. Well, I remember at the PCA General Assembly, you know, six or seven, your mind plays tricks with you, but six right. or seven years ago, and um, they were discussing a new perspective on Paul and mm. justification, and R.C. Sproul, who's a member of the PCA, uh, who doesn't normally attend uh, General Assembly uh, because of his health in yeah. recent years, uh, but he was there and he stood up at a microphone, but he was probably two or three speakers behind. Uh, it was going to take a while. Yeah. But my, my memory serves me correctly. The people in front of him stepped aside hmm. and the moderator uh, recognized him and there was... Well, there was a sense of expectation. Yeah. I wonder what R.C. is going to say. And, and he said what you might have expected R.C. to say about the historic doctrine of justification. And there was a sense, okay, well, R.C. has spoken. Mm. And um, whilst there were some young bucks who challenged what he said, yeah. um, there was also a sense in which um, wisdom and and age and the coalescence of the two mm. had met mm. and been heard. Mm. Um, and it was wise for us younger people to just listen. Well, yes, but I'm saying, I think I'm saying that, that there was probably an element of that at the assembly too. Right. So we debuted a new segment last week, Orthodox or Not. Um, this week we have just like a minute and a half to try and, and, and do this segment. I want us to evaluate the statement that God alone is the binder of my conscience. Is that orthodox or not? Uh, it is orthodox. Okay. So if it is orthodox, what do we do with those brothers and sisters for whom tradition is held very highly, maybe even above what God would say in scripture? Uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. 
Now, if that tradition is in keeping with what God has taught in Scripture, yeah. uh, then then tradition does have a certain weight and a certain uh, gravity, but it must all be subordinate to the rule and governance of the Word of God. Mm. You know, God speaks, but He speaks in His Word. So, so the Lord, the way He exercises His lordship over our conscience, is in the Bible right. and in the right interpretation of the Bible. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all our episodes, which you can find on our webpage at firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcasting applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or issues you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can reach us at our email address, which is 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. Or via our Twitter account, which is at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or by phone, 803-281-1795. 803-281-1795. For Dr. Thomas, I'm Josh Squires. We look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.